Radio Mano Papachango. in the middle of the fucking desert near Terlingua, Texas with Jeff Leach, an example of why I love traveling and why I love podcasting. This, this was all totally serendipitous. Uh, I, I sort of mentioned in a podcast that went up earlier uh, how we met, so I won't go through that again. But I just love, I love, uh, I've always, you know, I traveled through my 20s and 30s, and one of the reasons I did was that I love that feeling of, Starting a day thinking you're going to do a certain thing, and at the end of the day, you're in a totally different world <laughs> with people you didn't know existed, you know. And this is uh, this Terlingua experience is a great example. So thanks for doing this. You're very busy. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. I mean, you're very busy, and you're turning down interview requests from the New York Times and the BBC and Vice and everybody else. So I really appreciate you making time for this little podcast. Yeah, you bet. No, looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, quick introduction. You, you. Uh, I read about you in your fecal transplant uh, blog post. What was that? Three years ago? Four years ago? I think it was about three years ago. Yeah, I posted that, and then uh, it kind of skyrocketed and went viral, and uh, got quite a bit of attention. That I wasn't looking for because uh, that really wasn't the intention. It was kind of just a. Just a dump of some ideas and thoughts, and didn't think it actually anybody would read it, but a, a couple, of, but a couple of yeah. million people did. So yeah, and so you you've been this fecal transplant and and the microbiome and all this isn't even really your main or wasn't your main gig, right? I mean, you sort of stumbled into this. Yeah, backed into it. I spent uh, I spent the 1990s digging uh, square holes and round archaeological sites and so uh, throughout the American Southwest and I'd always had an interest in food and diet and how people prepared food over time. I was very interested in that and so uh, uh, about 15 years ago my daughter was diagnosed as a type 1 diabetic which was pretty devastating as a parent as you can mm -hmm. imagine anybody out there that has a child with any kind of disease in our case it was an autoimmune disease so as a parent it was devastating for my then wife and I, uh, but as from a research perspective, I wanted to try to understand why, uh, what happened, why did she become a diabetic? And this was again early two thousands, uh, and at the time. Uh, there was not really much of a connection between microbes that we carry in our body and on our skin and how that may relate to diseases like autoimmune disease. Now, if you fast forward to 2010, you know, 2008, 2012, the technology started to improve at such a rate that, that microbiologists and chemists and evolutionary biologists were able to start to characterize these bugs in a reliable way and started to see connections possibly with our Western lifestyle, how that's changed our microbiome. Biome. The microbiome is the, the bugs we carry in our bodies and their genes. Uh, so the microbiome is the bugs and their genes. Uh, started making the connection with autoimmune disease. And, uh, and so I started asking the question, started attending conferences, trying to understand, started to shift my professional interest to microbes. And at that point, you were working, you, you made a little joke there, digging square holes in round sites. That's a, a, 
Ar- archaeologist yeah. joke, I guess. Yeah, no, I did a lot of archaeology all over the American Southwest. Right. I'd worked, uh, I'd worked uh, doing uh, archaeological surveys, excavations, did a lot of really cool stuff, and so, uh, and just kind of, and that actually prepared me or prepped me to ask the kinds of questions mm. I started to ask when I started to get interested in microbiology, if you will. Right. So one of the things that was lacking, which was interesting, you know, back in 2008, 2012, you know, if if you're a microbiologist and you're at a university in the United States and you want to know, you know, for example, you want to, you, you take 30 obese people and 30 lean people and you sequester them in a hospital, you collect stool samples from them, you characterize the bugs in those stool samples, and then you were able to say, okay, obese people have different, you know, microbes, let's say, than thin people, and then you add up all the confounders, you know, diet and lifestyle. But one of the things that struck me was that if we want to understand what an optimal microbiome looks like, what bugs should we have, we're asking the wrong population. Because all of us here in the West, you know, um, in the modern world, if you will, or the globalized world, are impacted. You know, we drink yeah. too much tequila, we smoke too much dope, we drink chlorinated water, we, we eat too much crap, we live indoors, we don't interact with plants and animals. Right. So we're never going to understand what an optimal microbiome is, whatever that is, unless we start looking at populations that are still intimately connected to the landscape. In other words, populations that still live how humans maybe live for tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years, which is nearly impossible to find anymore, but there are some populations out there that will give us some clues and that's what we started to work with right did you have a connection to the Hadza before this or was this the origin of your your interest in the Africa? yeah the first projects that we jumped off into were in South Africa we were interested yeah. in the San Bushman in right. uh, so the San Bushman if you if you remember that's the gods must be crazy guys you right. know the bo- coke bottle out of the airplane Kung the Kung, yeah, yeah the click spinkers so about 2009 2008 we ended up in a project down in Botswana and Namibia uh, the problem with the San Bushmen is uh, they're heavily impacted, yeah. as you can imagine, because of. Uh, you know. All right, we're back. My card filled up. I've, I, this is a 64 gigabyte card. I've been using it since 2016. And today it just fucking filled up. So uh, we took a little break there. Uh, I'm back with Pooh. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff said there's so many Jeffs in town. How many Jeffs can there be? How many of anything can there be in Terlingua, There's at least Texas. two. There's there, at there, least two Jeffs here, so I'm I'm Pooh Jeff. So you're which, Pooh uh, Jeff. Can't get, I can't I can't shake it. Right. So I think when so you were saying the Hadza are impacted, but they're still uh, you know uh, relevant as a sort of ground zero for microbiome research and. I think, oh, what I asked you, like how you explain to the Hadza what you're doing, right. you know, and, and you're talking about how you, you've explained to them to, you know, dip the Q-tip in their in their feces and put it in this nitrogen tube and all that. But like, do they, can you explain to them why this is interesting? I mean, what is their sense of science and, and why they're interesting to outsiders like you and, right, you know, and also in a larger sense, what is their sense of the outside world? Are they fascinated by it and attracted to it or because it it strikes me that almost every example of contact between civilization and what you know so-called uncivilized people the uncivilized people aren't they don't want to join everybody who's crossed over seems to cross from civilization to go native right very few people ever 
voluntarily choose to come over to this side. Yeah. No, like I said, uh, like I said the, the Hods are heavily impacted. They have lots of interactions with lots of groups, especially pastoralists. Uh, every Hods has had an interaction with a, a tourist. Uh, there mm. are, what's interesting about the area that we work, the there are some Hods of camps that uh, literally see tourists every day during mm. the busy season. They, you know, they roll up in the Land Rover, they jump out, the Hods are take them hunting, they sell them things. But as you move farther out, uh, away Away from these areas, uh, the amount of tourists drops way off, and so yeah. uh, so there are Hadza that attend boarding school. Uh, there are mm. some Hadza. There's a young man that was going to law school. Mm. Uh, we help support some of that as well. Some Hadza working with uh, James Woodburn in the '60s, '70s, and '80s uh, got on an airplane and went to Cambridge, and so uh, but. Most of the Hadza that we're most interested in are in very, very remote camps. They have limited exposure to tourists. They have limit. What more importantly, they have limited exposure to antibiotics. Problem is, yeah. is the Hadza are rapidly getting run over. And so I think the window for the kinds of questions that we want to ask and the Hadza are willing to participate in, uh, that window's closing very, very, very fast. Right. And so with each new course of antibiotics that shows up, with each coca-cola with each tourist uh it's impacting their microbiome so they're moving farther and farther away from being untainted now i can't imagine how hard it is for the anthropologists who work who are still asking anthropological questions yeah how they deal with this uh and i know it's a problem but the hadza are very aware of the outside world they get it again a lot of the, some hadza have traveled to cities like arusha and karatu and these bigger cities so they get it uh they, they also, see jets flying over oh, yeah, and they know what they that are remote. Yeah, they're yeah. not that remote. And uh, like I said, a lot of Hadza have cell phones. They trade for the cell phones. Uh, it's hard to get minutes, uh, but they'll trade for so, minutes. And there's coverage out there? Yeah, there are. So I see the. It was uh, when I first started working in Hadza land about five years ago, there was an area that I focused in. There was no cell towers. Then about three years ago, a cell tower popped up, you know, a couple of miles in the distance to connect two larger areas. So globalization's coming and it's coming very, very fast. So the work that we do uh, is time sensitive. And, uh, and so the question is, is they were impacted when we started working with them. They're even more so today. And so uh, there's probably only a few more years of doing what we do at the Hadza before they're impacted to the point that we can no longer recognize what their microbiome looked like in 2013. Would you then be able to switch to animal models, to chimpanzees or bonobos? Yeah, what, we do have collaborations. Uh, we have a project with Alex Peel and his wife Fiona down at uh, Ugala. Uh, Ugala. Uh, we work with them, so we work with chimps down there. But to, to basically head this problem off, what we've done is collected massive amounts of samples. Mm. Uh, we have enough samples now. Uh, it's a collaboration. This project is a, I have something called the Human Food Project, which is a nonprofit I started. Dot. Uh, yes, humanfoodproject.com. And if anybody's, you know, you can follow along on the project, uh, read blog posts, uh, buy our little book that we use to raise funds with, and so on. Which so I on. just got a copy of. Yeah. Have, I, have you I, signed it yet? I, no, I need the 50 cents, though. I want it signed in shit. <laughs> Be careful what you ask for. I want a shit smear on there. So so our project is that our main main collaborator on this project is the Justin Sonnenberg Lab at Stanford University. Uh, Other collaborators.
partners on this project include New York University, mm. where we have Maria Gloria Dominguez Bello, uh, who is a world-renowned microbiologist. Uh, we have Rob Knight at the University of California, San Diego, Gregor Reed. Uh, most importantly, we have African collaborators at the National Institute of Medical Research. Mm. Uh, the, is Max Planck involved with this at all? No, uh. no. Uh, we don't work with them. Uh, our overall collaboration is about probably 12 different labs around the world that are looking at different aspects of samples you know we collect you know we were talking earlier about uh, our main sample collection is focused on feces and so uh, we collect lots of feces uh, importantly you know your microbiome we know in the west changes you know it can change from day to day week to week but it pretty much stays in the same place so we've been interested in the Im- the, the uh, impact of seasonality right. on the Hadza gut so for example right. if it's if in the dry season and the Hadza typically eat more meat because there's less water. The animals are more predictable, so they can do ambush hunting instead of what yeah, water the, holes. Yeah, water yeah. holes instead of doing encounter hunting, which is walking around looking for animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so meat consumption goes up. Uh, they consistently eat an extraordinary amount of tubers. Uh, you know, you know Richard Rangham and that crowd who uh, are interested in tubers will they're considered fallback foods, but the Hadza literally eat them on a daily basis. And when the rains come, here come the flowers. And when you have flowers, you have pollen and pollen you have bees and now you have honey and then you have berries so as the rains come and go the resources that they depend on come and go as well so we hypothesize that this seasonality which has been going on for millions of years in east africa would have an impact on their microbiome and over the course of a couple years collecting samples in different seasons we were able to map this where let's just say simply in january their microbiome looked like something and by the time they did a full year and came back it came right back to where it was in January. So it's cyclical. And what's really interesting about the seasonality, this is the first time this was ever documented at this scale before. The question is, is this, if the human microbiome changes throughout seasons, you know, and kind of, uh, for the lack of a better term, a circadian-like rhythm, is that important? Because here in the West, you know, we can all go down the grocery store and buy blueberries 12 months out of the year. We yeah. Can, so we don't have to eat seasonally, though a lot of us do if you shop at farmer's market or you have your own garden or whatever. But for the most part, the Western populations, there's very little seasonality to their gut. Now, I helped co-found a project a few years ago called the American Gut Project. So I co-founded that with Rob Knight at the University of California, San Diego, and it's a large collaboration of dozens of labs around the around the world. And what we do is we allow anybody from the general public to sign up for the project. It's a it's a not for profit gig. Uh, so you you kick in a hundred bucks. Uh, the American Gut Project will send you a tube and instructions, and then you're going to provide a stool sample we ask that you fill out a very detailed questionnaire uh some dietary recall information you know have you taken antibiotics lately do you take pro you know on and on and on 50 plus questions i believe we take that data um, that metadata we and then we take your sample provide you results of what's in your stool we give you kind of a shopping list of who's in there we don't provide diagnosis. We're not going to tell you, you know, this is how you make your freckles fall off or are you susceptible to this and will you do that? And we basically give you the results and then you can do with them what you want. But we've now looked at, you know, 
tens of thousands of samples uh, and you start to see patterns across the planet. So I think we've sampled from more than 100 different countries around the world, mostly in the US and the UK, and we see patterns. And one of the patterns we see is there's a little bit of seasonality, like during the winter, uh, we see the microbiome change in Western cohorts, and that's either because of close quarters or maybe too much eggnog, who knows? But we do see a little <laughs> bit of seasonality in the Western cohort, but nothing like we see in the Hadza. Right. We recently published these results in science. Science, uh, a couple months back and we made the cover of science which was very exciting so but anyway That's so our every original, science is wet dream right there yeah it was it was exciting but do, so, you, do you have a phd no, no. You're, you're you're a fucking rebel you're yeah. i mean i wish people could see you right so we're now, working on that now covered in dirt and paint and <laughs> big ass goofy hat on yeah <laughs> yeah, big ass goofy. Yeah, I got sandals, got beads got on me. Beads, I, the cover of science. That's amazing. Yeah, and I and got, you got I was, stuff in nature as well. Yeah, and I, I was profiled in science a few years ago, um, and so. Uh, but, but anyway, the the uh, seasonality question was really interesting, and so now we've moved on to asking more interesting questions. Wait, before you before you leave the seasonality, because I, I mean, this is something I think about a lot. How civilization aspires to consistency right like we want a consistent source of water consistent source of food consistent temperatures right we want the air climate controlled filtered air the whole sort of uh of uh architecture of civilization is about removing these fluctuations right and yet fluctuation you know, like the Buddhist thing is find the middle path, right? You know, sort of moderation. I don't think it's about moderation. I think it's about moving between the extremes. Right. So on average, on aggregate, it becomes, it looks like moderation. But in fact, like in my life, I like traveling and then stopping and then traveling and then stopping. Right. You know, it, it's everything. It seems like our bodies and our minds are really built for these fluctuations, these you know what you circadian rhythms or whatever right. so we're shooting ourselves in the foot by making things consistent and predictable and easy maybe yeah uh, you know who knows and i think that's the, that's an interesting part i think on the, this project that we started is again back to we talked about earlier about the pastoralists are literally running the hadza over uh we've been out for the last couple of years collecting massive amounts of samples you know i think we're up to ten thousand plus it's the largest project of its kind in the world mm. that i know of and it's not easy you know working in east yeah. africa in the bush i mean just the simple process of getting liquid nitrogen in the field is, right. is a nightmare and, and back to the the scientific thing do they understand why you're doing this and it's a good question. We've explained it. I don't, to be quite honest, I don't think they wrap their head around it. I think they understand this concept that we explain it as small animals that are in their like shit. parasites, which yeah. they've seen worms yeah. and stuff. Yeah, so that there's small animals in there and that we're interested in those small animals that live in their body. Right. I don't think they've made the connection with, even though we've tried to explain it, uh, <clears throat> made the connection that we're interested in and that maybe their animals their small microbes are different than ours i mean it's, it's just mm. it's it's unfathomable i think at some level uh, i think some of them get it a little bit more than the other but most importantly every hadza that per works with us uh works through informed consent right they consent to participate in the project uh, right. most have i'd say i can count on one hand the total number of hadza that uh, that have turned us down and why would that be don't know are they squeamish about shit no, 
they're not. Uh, they think it's funny, though. You mentioned well, they giggling. Think it's funny that I want it. Oh, okay. And, uh, that right. I want it, but they're not squeamish about it. Again, there are some some gender differences that we experience. So, for example, we, in addition to feces, we also uh, collect skin swabs from foreheads, hands, bottom of feet. What about vaginal? We do have IRB to do vaginal, and so we're going to be doing that this year. We collect oral samples. We uh-huh. collect breast milk. Uh-huh. Uh, so, for example, I have female researchers that work with us that, that collect uh, the breast milk uh, but they're not too shy about that either and right. uh, so again but what's so interesting about this project is you know we're collecting feces we're collecting oral we're collecting breast milk we're collecting samples from zebra and kudu and impala and we're sampling the same water sources seasonally so we see also this seasonal shifting in the water as well in the microbiome of the water and so this and we have every reason to believe this is going on for a very long time and so uh so because we can sample their entire landscape, we've been able to, which is uh, which we think is interesting, we're able to characterize their landscape, their microbial landscape. As I mentioned before, it's hard to do with Westerners because we're all over the place. Uh, but because mm. we've sampled the leaves uh, that growing on the trees that produce the berries, we sample the berries themselves, we sample the berries at different times of year. And so we've amassed this huge environmental database and at the end of the day, uh, that's really the most interesting part of the project. And so, as I was talking to you about the other day around, I think we were sitting around the campfire the other night, uh, enjoying the evening. And uh, the thing that struck me when I first started working there years ago was we went in there with a set of research questions. You know, the original research question was, does the human microbiome cycle through the seasons? That was the original research question that drove us to Africa. And do the Hadza harbor a unique set of microbes that maybe we don't here in the west and the answer to both of those was of course the microbiome cycles in the hadza and then the hadza basically i'm just going to oversimplify this but they harbor almost nearly twice as many species if you will also species is not necessarily a good term to use of microbes than let's say the average westerner are they do they have the same ones we have plus more or are they totally different uh, we, we share a lot of the same ones. And we also know that the Hadza share very specific uh, groups of bacteria that you only find like in populations like the Yanomamo in South America. Oh, so that's right. There's a, I remember reading about yeah, this. There's conserved. a consistency between the two, yeah. the two so you'll groups. You'll see microbes that occur in the Hadza gut and maybe the gut of the Yanomamo in South America, but don't occur in Westerners. Right. And so so what we see with the Hadza is they, they share. Here's a good example. You and I in our gut uh, probably have two different species of a group of bacteria called Prevotella. It's a very important genus. Uh, it's, it's a topic of a lot of research. And you and I carry two species in our gut. Now, there's different species in our mouth and so on and so forth. But the Hadza, you know, they have, you know, 10 of those. Hmm. And so we, you and I, again, I'm oversimplifying, you and I maybe have lost eight of these species. And the question is this, does that matter? Right. And so an emerging theme in microbiome research, uh, again, everybody works on lots of different things, okay? Uh, every lab in the world is focused on different research questions. They may work in psychology. They may work in the autoimmune disease. They may work in who knows what. Nutrition, weight control. Yeah, everybody's asking different questions. Yeah. and so. On. But one thing that's emerging in microbiome research, which has basically been a cornerstone of ecology, is that the diversity of microbes that you carry in your body 
may be important. For example, when you look at, uh, if you look at a landscape and you see 30 different species of trees, several different species mm. of mammals, invertebrates, that is a diverse ecosystem. Right. So when you go in and you start removing species, you start to reduce the resilience. Resiliency, the resistance, right, yeah. yeah. Resistance and resilience. So resistance is how, you know, you know if you, if you uh, apply a perturbation to a landscape, let's say it's a drought, or too much water, or too many fire, nutrients, yeah. fire, whatever. How well that ecosystem resists that challenge is one measurement. And then once it's challenged, how quickly it rebounds is its resilience. Right. So these are cornerstones of ecology and are now becoming part of the microbiome discussion. And one of the things that we started learning in Africa, which has had a profound effect on how I view the world and uh nutrition and the environment and so on and so forth is that so here we are with the Hadza have this extraordinary diverse set of microbes so uh, more so than you and I so highly resistant so a challenge could be an antibiotic you know could be a wildflower on wildfire on a landscape or an antibiotic oh right okay, how so, quickly they'll recover so yeah. if you challenge you and me and huh. you and I take let's say a broad spectrum antibiotic we take a thousand milligrams of whatever amoxicillin for 10 days it's going to knock the shit pun intended out of your microbiome so it's going to probably reduce based on research published research is probably going to reduce the diversity in your ecosystem but once the perturbation is pulled meaning you stop your antibiotic course how quickly does Chris rebound and so you may rebound to what it looked like originally before the antibiotic in a day a week a month a year or never yeah. and that's often the case now the Hadza it's unethical for us to give them antibiotics and do this experiment right but the ecological principles tell us that they are more resistant than you and I and they're more resilient now here's the here's the rub so let's just say you start, I'm just going to simplify here. Let's say you have 500 species of bacteria in your gut. Now again, oversimplifying here. And you take an antibiotic and you chase it with whiskey and smoke some dope or whatever you want to do. And you now you're down to, let's say, 250 species. Again, oversimplifying here. How quickly you recover is dependent on the ability for new microbes to re-immigrate. It's about immigration. So let's just say... You, you, you wiped out all the blue ones and the red ones. Right. Okay. Once you wipe them out, where are you going to get the blue ones and red right. ones? Again? The environment. You may get them from your wife. You may get them uh, from your neighbors, uh -huh. your dog, uh, your wife. But maybe you can't get them anywhere. Right. Okay. And that's the problem. So what happens with the Hansa is uh, we believe that the total diversity that they carry, some of these are heirlooms that are, you know, when you're born vaginally, you're inoculated with your mother's bacteria. Okay. And then those are your early settlers, if you will. And then from there, they start to change and you start to rapidly grow as you introduce solids and so on and so forth. Now, if you're born C-section, you're not inoculated with mother's vaginal flora. The bacteria in your gut look a lot like the skin of your mother and right. the people in the room. And the hospital room, and yeah, the, hospital the curtains and the sheets. Yeah. And, yeah. So if you have a Hadza, let's just say that's out on the landscape, and let's just say they decide they're going to eat nothing but honey for a week. All right. And they're going to they're going to pound a couple thousand calories a day of honey and they kind of drop <laughs> off the other food. It's going to have an impact on their microbiome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's going to shift. Maybe the diversity is going to go down. Maybe it's going to go up. But let's just say they have a challenge. 
uh, let's just say a Hadza took an antibiotic. Let's just go straight to what we were just talking about. Let's say a Hadza took a broad spectrum antibiotic for a week, and they do have access to antibiotics. And unfortunately, researchers give them antibiotics, which drives me crazy. Are there antibiotics in the food supply? Not that they're eating, but in chicken and stuff in Tanzania? Yeah. So if they go to the city, they're getting antibiotics as well. But not many of them venture to the city, but some of them have been. So let's say you take that same example. You you took a broad spectrum antibiotic for 10 days. Let's say a Hadza does the same thing, again, hypothetically. Their diversity drops, but they live on the landscape that contributed a lion's share of those microbes to begin with. And because they are out touching blood, feces, urine, dirty water, the barriers for them to receive new immigrants are almost non-existent. Right. So it recolonizes quickly. Could you do that? I know you don't want, you can't, you really shouldn't give, give them antibiotics, but could you do that with skin, for example, like, you know, wipe their hands with a, uh, antimicrobial wash or something and then see how quickly that repopulates yeah we actually have irb approval to do that so Ah, what we would do is you would take us that's a great question you're tracking on the right stuff and uh so what happens is what we're we're interested in doing with some hadza is you know basically introducing some distilled water uh cleaning you know sampling before and after the cleaning and then a day later a week later and so on and so forth and see how long it takes for their hands to recover if you will also one of the things that we want to do is the hadza don't filter their water okay You know, they're drinking from divots in the ground and springs and so are the zebra and the baboons are shitting in it and stuff. And uh, one of the things we want to do is we want to introduce filtered water into the camp where they take that water and run it through uh, these filtering systems and just see how clean water, not chlorinated water, but cleaned filtered water changes their microbiome. So these are very simple experiments. Yeah. And so, but one of the things that was most striking uh, about this project that I think has implications for global health, uh, and I think it will very soon, uh, as soon as we're smart enough to figure this out, uh, we have the samples now. Now it's about doing analysis in multiple labs and asking different questions is that one of the things that happens in the West, again, back to that concept of diversity, there's an emerging research theme that thinks uh, that suggests that that potentially uh, there may be a drop in one's diversity in the West that's then followed by a disease. Okay, so for example, autoimmune disease. Uh, it may be, or it might not be, we're not sure, it may be that, that before the disease is diagnosed, maybe an hour, a day, a week, or a month before, there was a drop in the diversity, the ecosystem was vulnerable, Okay, mm. which may have led to a series of dominoes that led to the disease. Right. So in order to figure that out, you're going to have to follow a large group of people, let's say kids, maybe hundreds, if not thousands of kids sampling in them on a regular basis before a disease occurs. So if you sample in enough detailed time points, you might see a shift in the microbiome right. that then is followed by a disease. It's not causation, but it's an interesting correlation. I wonder if there's a way to get some retrospective information from a current sample. Like if, if there are markers of new growth, for example, in particular uh, microbes that suggest that the... So I, I imagine in the in interior ecosystem, there's a, a balance that's formed 
I wonder if there's a way to look and say, oh, this is this particular species. These are this is new growth. Therefore, this was lower a month ago. Right. No, that's a good question. I think there's a there are people working on those questions. Uh, Do you want to pause? No. There's people working on those questions. Absolutely. The the interesting thing I was about to point out was this: because my daughter was diagnosed as a type one diabetic when she was less than two years of age, I'm interested in the. The infant microbiome, if you will. Right. Now, here's yeah. an interesting thing that happens in the West. So, so let's say uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith have a baby in St. Louis. Uh, the baby's born, let's say, C-section, strike one, maybe. Maybe the baby's not breastfed, maybe strike two. You got to remember breast milk mm. has nutrients for the baby, fats, vitamins, minerals, but it also has special, uh, what are called human milk oligosaccharides. It's actually food for bacteria right. in that milk, and it's not there by accident. Right. Also, breast and, and milk. Chlor- chlor- what's it, chlorostrum? What's the first couple of days? Cholesterol. Yeah. And that contains. Sure. But yeah. most importantly, that breast milk contains bacteria. Right. And Starter so, yeah. groups. Yeah. Right? So yeah. literally, it's a daily dose from mom's probiotic breast, yeah. if you will. Yeah. And so what happens in the West, Mr. and Mrs. Smith have little Jimmy. Little Jimmy's born C-section. Okay. So it's not inoculated with mother's vaginal or heirloom, which is passed from generation. Okay. That's called vertical transmission. You vertically transmit from mother to child. And then the baby's not breastfed, so the, the, the microbes aren't being nourished, right. nor is the baby receiving those bacteria in the mother's breast milk which are excreted from her mammary gland which some of them are you know come from different parts of her body maybe even her colon her gastrointestinal tract but what happens is is it takes you know several years for little jimmy moving from breast milk to solids to cheetos to whatever to acquire uh, an adult-like microbiome by adult-like i mean diversity you start off with a very low diversity of very specific group of bacteria and then you through succession you end up with an adult-like microbiome and it takes two or three years now you got to remember in those first few months or those first thousand days of life that immune system is in overdrive you're training the, those microbes are training those yeah. uh the microbes are trained that immune system to recognize friend from foe so that later on you don't overreact and when you do overreact we know it is autoimmune disease Mm -hmm. what's interesting about the hadza kids is these hadza kids born in the dirt born in a grass hut vast majority born vaginally we do have some c-section hadza kids that we're following these kids are you can imagine in a village they're moved around you know dad's got blood on his hands feces from the kudu he just killed Uh, your little your your brother who's eight years old is out killing birds and so there's a lot of microbes moving around the camp so consequently these children achieve an adult-like microbiome in six months Hmm. so they get hyper intense training very quickly so we have every reason to believe that's been going on for a very very long time so let's look at the downside of this because i know a lot of people listening to this are saying all right you two are talking about you know wading through kudu feces as if it's a good thing Mm -hmm. and i'm happy to be living in my you know clean apartment in vancouver and there's no kudu feces anywhere near me right uh we, I mean, let's acknowledge that some of those kids don't make it through that training, right? Yeah. What did you say the other day? It was like one in four, was yeah, it? Yeah, one in five. The research one by Frank Marlowe's group and other people, it's not research that we do. It's stuff that's been over the last few decades is that, if I, if I recall correctly, the childhood mortality is one out of five don't make it to five. And it's from childbirth, malaria, simple infections. But once you make it to five, I mean, average life expectancy of a Hadza is early 30s. Okay, which has nothing average, to, average right? Which but has if, nothing to do with their. So what's a what's an old Hatsa? Uh, eighty five. Yeah. Yeah, okay. You, know, you got to remember how how uh, 
uh, average life expectancy is is calculated. Let's say two 30-year-olds yeah. uh, have a baby. So 30 and 30 equals 60. You have a baby that dies in a week. Now you have to divide three into 60. Average life expectancy of the family is 20. Right. Now once a Hadza makes it to five, they got a pretty good shot at 15. Once you're 15, you're off to the races. And so, yeah. But here's another important point. Does it drive you fucking crazy when you hear someone say, well, back in the day, we only lived to 30? Yeah. And I, every time I hear that, I just want to fucking slap somebody. Yeah. It's like, you know, get a get a get a copy of Economist and start reading. Yeah. And so, well, but but uh, doctors believe this. Yeah. I, I, I quote a doctor in, in I think it's in Civilized to Death or maybe Sex at Dawn saying, you know, well, of course we have chronic back pain because the human body only evolved to live until 35. Right. So, you know, anything after 35, your body's breaking down because it's not designed for that. It's right. like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> exactly. God damn it. Sorry to interrupt. It's you. all right. Uh, so what are we talking about? Infant mortality yeah. and it, so. So the other thing that's important to remember too is is what we're not suggest. It's not what we're doing. It's not our product. We're not suggesting anybody become a hunter gatherer. We're not suggesting that they have an ideal diet. We're not. Mm. Su- we're not suggesting they have the ideal microbes. Right. What we're just trying to do is characterize a free living population that's still intimately connected to nature. And if we can characterize that then we can start to ask questions of it. So sure, the Hods are impacted. Sure, we live just fine. Sure, we're still evolving. I get all that. We're not arguing for a paleo diet. We're not arguing for anything. All we want to know is this really interesting group of people who've who've agreed to participate and help us, uh, we're trying to characterize what they look like. And so, and because they live the way that they live, it it's more closely represents how we used to all live. So we obviously make that leap and say, okay, their microbiome, if it's more diverse than ours, means probably their ancestors had just as diverse microbiomes, maybe even more so. Mm. Probably unlikely it was less diverse, okay? But they're yeah. gonna be in the ballpark. Right. So, so it's interesting that they're more diverse and if you believe the basics of ecology 101, diversity is potentially uh, protective uh, against perturbations. Right. So, which gets me to what I think is the most interesting thing that we've discovered so far, that it's going to take years to kind of kind of fuss this out. So, we're working on lots of different questions, looking at the data and the samples, and and there'll be dozens of papers that come out of this project, and there'll be hundreds of people that'll collaborate on the papers over the next couple of years. But the thing that struck me the most, I mean, first time I went to Hadzaland. And I was it was I mean I was walking on cloud line. I read about these guys for decades, and here I am sitting around a fire with guys talking a language that has been around probably for a while. Yeah, uh, you know, eating zebra. And so I mean, you couldn't ask, you couldn't have put me in a better spot anywhere in the world. And so, but after spending years with the Hods and sitting around fires and becoming a hunter gatherer myself, uh, participating and going out with them, following them on hunts gathering berries, collecting honey, climbing up baobab trees, uh, watching babies be born, watching grass huts be built. The first time I saw Hadza, I grew up in Texas uh, hunting. I grew up you know, hunting with bows and arrows and rifles mm. and shotguns and did all that redneck stuff when I was a kid. I don't hunt anymore. Um, Why not? I just, I just don't have time. <laughs> it comes in the store with a wrapper around it now. It's pretty handy. And I have friends that hunt, so I rely on that. Right. So... Uh, yeah. But the, the, the first time I saw a Hadza kill an impala, which is a large deer looking, uh, not a very large, but a deer looking ungulate, it's an ungulate, uh, and they hung it up in a tree by its horns and they started to butcher it and I started to photograph. Now, of course, I sampled his hands before he touched the animal and so on and so forth and a couple of his buddies showed up and they're field dressing this animal. I wasn't prepared for what I was about to see and I wrote about this in Nature in a little blurb. Uh, 
no, they took the stomach out of the impala and hung it in the tree and then took a knife and sliced it open and then they scraped all the stomach contents out, which of course is undigested grass and leaves and things like that. Um, and then what they did, they took the colon out, okay, of the of the impala and then inside the colon was the little pellets you know it looked like oversized m&ms and they just took their finger and just squished it and then all the pellets came flying out they took the colon tossed it on a fire they had made for maybe three seconds okay took the colon out put it in his mouth and ate it sushi style at that moment in time I was floored. And so it, re and I knew going into this, you know, I'd been in the field for a while, but it's been a while for I saw him, uh, first time I saw him kill anything. But the extraordinary exchange of microbes between two mm. species yeah. didn't hit home until that moment right there. Straight Eating up. raw colon, which is lined with uh, microbes. And then they took the stomach and ate it sushi style. So again, a whole nother set of microbes. Now, of course, the stomach environment's very acidic. There's a whole different microbial community, but they sampled it, probiotic, right in your mouth. Right. Hands covered in blood. Right. They take their hands. Now, if you've ever killed an animal, blood's really sticky. Uh, they rub their hands in the stomach contents because the acidity of the stomach contents cut the blood. Uh -huh. So now you have a guy that's got blood on his hand, stomach contents on his hand, <laughs> stomach contents and microbes from the stomach in his mouth, now in his gut, yeah. uh, colon, not to mention the microbes on the skin, not to mention the microbes in the dirt that the animal's laying, not to mention the microbes on the bark of the tree where it's, it just the list goes on and on and on. And then they'll take that animal, cook, eat some of it, maybe a little bit. Uh, they don't really do a whole lot of cooking uh, and then head back to camp to share and they're a central based foraging society so it's about sharing um, and then the kids are then touch their father women don't do a lot of hunting by the way they do kill small animals from time to time mm -hmm. but it's predominantly a male typical hunter-gatherers yeah. yeah. and um, so then here comes the child here comes the sibling touching the other sibling here's the wife so now the microbes are moving around the camp so we're able to sample their hands and follow these microbes around the camp right. so when I saw this it it I we it went from research question of does the Hadza microbiome change seasonally to holy shit, this is it. This is <laughs> yeah. this is what made us human. If you remove all the microbes from our body today, let's just say you strip me and you of all of our microbes, it would be a pretty brutal life for the next couple of days and we probably wouldn't make it. Yeah, okay? They're there yeah, for a reason. Right. They harvest nutrients, they they protect us, and the list goes on and on and on. And they're involved in everything, the brain-gut axis. It's just it's extraordinary. So once you see that, you're like, we went from that to you and I eating at the Starlight Theater last night, let's just say, uh, a hamburger and french fries that have been cooked, all the microbes killed. The hamburger meat has also been, you know, it was uh, frozen. Frozen. Yeah. Uh, you were drinking an alcoholic beverage right. with no microbes on it. You had freshly bathed maybe in the last couple of days. Uh, there was no blood involved. There was no urine involved. There's no feces involved. Uh, there were microbes in our environment last night, but nothing like the extraordinary diversity that we yeah. see in Hadzaland. But then here is actually the even more interesting thing thing uh, and that was life and it's weird to say but it was it was life-changing at some level seeing that it really put it in perspective because here's what happened you have you have a lot of brilliant people working on the microbiome all around the world working at it from different angles some are some are the computational biologist guys some are the chemists some are the admin people that get the money you know it's everybody's working on it you, just, you can't be in in any form of the medical field now and not be trying to connect whatever your disease of interest is or mm -hmm. ailment to the microbiome because it, it yeah. appears to be all connected yeah 
But what has struck me, uh, which has literally changed the way I view the entire planet, uh, which is not an opportunity a lot of microbiologists get. I'm not a microbiologist, by the way, and I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night either. And uh, but is the uh, <laughs> wait? wait I, didn't, I didn't get that. You, you missed that commercial. Yeah. yeah. You remember that stupid commercial a few years ago uh, where the guy walks into whatever into a boardroom and starts rattling off all this data, and he's just some guy who stayed in a Holiday Inn last night and got smarter. Oh uh, no, all that? I never saw. I don't. You know, maybe I don't watch in, TV. Yeah, yeah maybe uh, there's an old commercial. That's that's part commercial. of the uh, intellectual microbiome. Yeah. I try to yeah. stay maybe away you can from. Edit that part out. <laughs> uh, but what really struck me was this. So a, a couple years ago, uh, Rob Knight and I at University yeah. of California, San yeah. Diego. I mentioned the American Gut Project, AmericanGut.org, where you can sign up, donate 100 bucks to the project, get your stool sample, yeah. that, yada, yada, yada. So these things weren't available five years ago. Yeah. The average person, it was very expensive to get somebody to sequence your microbiome in your stool sample. So now it's 100 bucks. And I, in the future, it's going to be 20 bucks. And then farther in the future, it's going to be free. And so... Uh, once people start to actually sequence their microbiome and then it's very empowering i don't know if you've ever you ever gone to the doctor and you you, you you pee you cough you get the finger up the yahoo whatever you got going on but you know you got these diagnostic reports that you know that has you know this level of that this level of that and somebody's talking to you about eating more omega this or omega that it's very confusing yeah. okay but when you get a printout that says you have so many of these bugs at the genus level, so many bugs this, so many of these guys, so many of these, it's incredibly empowering. And knowing that you can change your lifestyle and diet and nudge them in another direction, the question is which direction you should go. But working in Africa now, again, sitting around the fire, seeing the connection between the plants, the animals. And again, I've gone full hunter gatherer, drinking dirty water, doing the whole so thing. So you join them with you, do you eat the colon and all that stuff? I haven't got to colon yet. <laughs> You're working your way up I'm working to my, it. I'm just working my way to baboon oh, brains. Yeah, working my way to baboon <laughs> brains. But, uh, uh, yeah. but the one thing yeah. that really struck me was, okay, if you go back to that question of diversity, okay, uh, what everybody's trying to do now, and if you've, you know, the, there's all these companies going public that are now chasing, um, you know, fecal transplant pills. Uh, everybody's looking for a magic bullet. You know, yeah. everybody's looking for a magic bullet that Chris and Jeff could go down to CVS, buy a bottle of these, pop these pills every day, and increase our diversity. Right. Okay. Or introduce some bugs that maybe we're missing. Okay. Right. Uh, who we need to reintroduce, nobody knows. Okay. Uh, but that's where it's headed. The problem with that is, is again, when you go back to Africa, you sit around that fire, you know, and you see that connection to nature, you realize very quickly how connected the human microbiome is to the microbiome of the landscape. Now, imagine you ever see one of those maps of the United States where they show all the little highways and the black ones are the interstates, the little mm. red ones are the farm roads, and it looks mm. like a, a circulatory system yeah, exactly. or a nervous system. Now, yeah. imagine the Hadza. So that's their landscape. Yeah. The Hadza are standing at the intersection okay, of this microbial superhighway that's been running through the gut of humans for millions of years. Yeah. Now we broke the bridge. Right. We cut the highway. The flow We stopped. cut the flow. So yeah. once you sit there and you start to look at, the, and you start to sample the zebras, you sample the water, you sample the bees, we sample the honey, we sample everything. You start realizing that their source of diversity, which again, we all know, is original vertical transmission from mother, that first inoculation, and then that horizontal transfer from the landscape so if a Hadza runs to town okay let's just say they get in a land cruiser with some tourists and they go 500 miles to some town they no longer have access to that microbial superhighway. but the minute they go back they're right back on the interstate okay 
fast forward to you and I, we're screwed. All right. Because we couldn't even being there, we can't really absorb the, those microbes. Is that what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, we can. I mean, uh, what I'm saying is, is that the diversity drop that we now see in Western populations. Okay. You, let's say you and I have half of what Hadza have, and right. we believe the Hadza represent what their ancestors have. Okay. Right. Play that game for a minute. Right. So, is a pharmaceutical company going to be able to double our diversity? Right. Okay. No, because the environment's also impoverished. And that's and you hit it right on the head. Fifty percent of the world's population lives in in urban settings. Urban means less plants, less animals. So that's called macro. So for example, the Hadza live in what you would call what ecologists would call a regional species pool. The regional species pool is the total of plants and animals, invertebrates on the landscape, okay, uh, that they have interaction and access to. The micro is the mic- is the microbes, basically the parasites, the viruses, the fungi that are living in and on that macro landscape of plants mm-hmm. and animals. So it's just, you know, in, in East Africa, you know, it's 50 plus large mammals. It's 800 different bird species, each one a little different than the other. Each one's died a little bit different. So it's an extraordinary, again, what I would call microbial Noah's Ark. Okay, if you will, mm-hmm. I'm not religious, but it's people get the people get the analogy. Yeah. So and it's and and our immune system. This is important. Our immune system evolved in that regional species pool. That's it. Intimately yeah. connected on that microbial superhighway to literally every organism on the landscape. Now, because of our diet and our physiology and our genetic makeup, we sample and use a certain number of those microbes now we don't necessarily have every microbe that's in a zebra in a hadza or a giraffe and so on and so forth but they've selected for over time microbes that are useful and beneficial for, for if you're a human okay and that's been going on for a long time now fast forward again to us today so what i'm hopeful for what i'm hopeful for and i'm also distressed about a little bit too is again i think we're screwed at some level okay now pharmaceutical companies i gave a talk here a couple months ago at a, a keynote at a probiotic conference in san francisco um, everybody in that room is in the business of selling people bugs okay uh selling you the next probiotic now i think next generation probiotics are going to be absolutely interesting and extraordinary most that the data suggests that current over-the-counter probiotics, you know, you might want to save your money and lick your fingers instead, okay? Right. But next-generation probiotics, where they're mix- mixing maybe dozens, if not hundreds of species into cocktails, they're going to figure it out, okay? Basically, what they're doing is they're putting that regional species pool in a pill. So you don't have to go back to that. At least that's what I told the group. And you could have heard a pen drop. They hadn't made that connection yet. So I think sooner or later, it may be a decade, it may be a hundred years, who knows. But I think modern medicine is going to drug, unfortunately, the microbiome into compliance, whatever that compliance is. Okay. Now, it doesn't mean that to be a successful human in 2025 or 2018, wherever the hell we're at, that we have to have the exact same bugs the Hadza have because there are regional differences in landscapes and microbes, that we have to have the exact same diversity they have. But by characterizing it like we're doing over the last couple of years, we're seeing a baseline that maybe we want to emulate. Right. Or at least choose from. Gives us a reference point. Now, yeah. if we think in the West, if you work, uh, if you work in diabetes you work in autoimmune disease heart wherever you work okay whatever your your stick is or if you you deal with plant microbiomes and you're in agriculture whatever it is because the microbes play a huge role in the health of 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 landscapes and agriculture so if if um 
if at the end of the day uh, we're trying to figure out which microbes that we should or shouldn't have uh I think the I think what's the interesting part of all this is is that once you make that connection that holy shit we used to literally we all hear about the touchy feely stuff let's go outside take your shoes off get back to nature smell the grass you know get your hands dirty all that other kind of stuff but this takes it to a whole nother level our health is intimately connected to the health and diversity of the landscape so ipso facto next step is we have these global environmental issues you know whether you're into the polar bear you know swimming around on the melting ice sheet drinking a coca-cola or whatever you know i think people are are kind of disconnected from environmental mm. issues you now i would i would argue that i'm what you would call a squiggly light bulb environmentalist i go down to the hardware store i buy a squiggly light bulb i screw it in i call it a day mm. all right i did my part right or i'm a checkbook environmentalist right you know and I'm not really, I don't get it, but I do pay attention, but it's so goddamn hard to understand. Yeah. And for most people who walk outside, everything looks fine, okay? But when you start looking at global deforestation, when you start to see changes in land, deforestation's a big one. When you start to look outside and you don't see a tree and you're in New York City, you just see trash cans. And when you realize that potentially, I think the World Health Organization, or maybe it was the UN, uh, said that, I think by 2050, 80% of us will be living in urban settings. Again, urban setting. Go to downtown London. Okay, go to the Piccadilly. Go to downtown New York. Go to St. Louis. What do you see? You don't see plants. You don't see animals. You see concrete. The, the animals you do see is a dog, a cat, a rat. You see some trees and some bushes, but it's gone. If you took a Hodza hunter-gatherer and dropped them in the Piccadilly in London, that first, I'm, I'm convinced, besides being freaked out, okay, uh, from all the people, would be, where are the plants and animals? Yeah. Okay. So what we've effectively done, so I would argue this, that, you know, there's the germ theory of disease now. Microbes are connected, and they're going to figure it out, Okay. But I think what, it, what, what the microbiome of the Hadza is trying to tell us, what the guts of the Hadza are trying to tell us, it's the environment, stupid. It's the environment. If you don't wake up and figure out how to slow deforestation in the context of global population growth that's not going to slow down anytime soon until the Pope starts handing out condoms, okay, and he ain't doing that anytime soon, and we're not going to start screwing around, and we're still going to have families. Families are getting smaller, but we're also living a lot longer because none of us want to die, and we'll spend every dime we have to live to 83 instead of 82 and a half. Population growth is going to continue. Sick babies are surviving. That, exactly. That's a problem. And then you and I are still alive, for God's sakes. Well, so, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't have any kids so that's my environmental <laughs> contribution so i think what's going to happen is is what i want to work on now what i think is interesting is that i think the gut microbiome and the research around it and the discoveries that have come and will come from this research is the greatest gift to the environmental movement and they don't even know it because it brings it right home it brings so if you yeah. can for example you take somebody that joins the american i'm not plugging the american gut project because it's a it's a not we lose money on every sample we process rob's lab does an extraordinary job but they they lose money but if you join something like the american gut project get your poo sequenced if you will and you figure out what bugs in there you've now taken the first step in your life potentially to understand the basics of ecology hmm. okay because your human gut is a diverse ecosystem system it's one of the most diverse ecosystems in the world and once you understand that that diversity is about resistance and resilience okay resistance and resilience 
uh, in a minute, remind me about the bending the bending tree limb. Okay, okay. There's, some, yeah. there's something else I think your listeners would find interesting. So as soon as people start understanding the basics of ecology 101, oh my God, I've got these animals in my gut, and I can feed them or not feed them, and they change, and species go up, and species go down, and my diversity goes up, my diversity goes down, and maybe just maybe I want more diversity. Uh, oh, by the way, just a quick side note. In the American Gut Project, uh, we've got a paper science right now that's being revised. We found that we asked people this question. We asked them to count the total species of plants that they ate in a week, but don't count spices. You know, you had bell peppers, onion, garlic, whatever. Average American eats less than five species of plants a week. Five. We found that people that consume, I think, the, I'm going to screw this up, but I think it was 25 or 30 species in a week had a a statistically more diverse microbiome than people that consume, let's say, less than five. Mm. Okay, so diversity in plant resources has a dramatic effect, or an interesting effect, or a statistically significant effect on the diversity of microbes. But going back to the original point of diversity, if we can get people to understand the basics of Ecology 101, that first step is getting your microbiome sequenced. And I would tell people, save the 150 bucks on the gym membership. You don't need another damn pair of running shoes for 200 bucks. Get your gut microbiome sequenced and start learning who's in your body and what they're doing and how you can manipulate them. But once you understand that, you become this microecologist. Mm. Now, now you're looking out the window and you're going, yeah, I, I have a lawn with one species of grass. Maybe I want to improve the diversity of my yard so it's more resistant to a perturbation mm -hmm. and that and it'll also be more resilient. Now, I'm going to get back to resilient again here in a second, which yeah. is super critical. At least I like to think it is. So what happens is, is once people make that connection, then they're like, oh, shit, okay, I saw in the newspaper that the city's thinking about whatever, knocking down the park and putting up a, a Walmart, whatever. I don't mean to pick on Walmart. They're cool. Uh, is you're like, hey, wait a minute. Let's not reduce the diversity in my neighborhood because if we remove the plants, we're going to lose the birds. We're going to lose the squirrels. We're going to lose the crickets, the spiders, the fungi. We're going to lose it, okay? It'll change to a different microbiome if you will but it may, it may not may not be as diverse we still need yeah. data to back this up and people yeah. need to look at this so what happens is then they start paying attention to the news all right they're like well oh, look at this deforestation you know it's all focused on the orangutans and that's terrible because we're going after palm oil and all this other stuff but maybe we really shouldn't knock down this 3,000 hectares of land so what you're giving people is an on-ramp are the mm. tools they need to wrap their head around what's being talked about that's so critical yeah. about global warming, deforestation, right. uh, urbanization in general. And th these trajectories, a lot of them are not going to be stopped. Okay, But if we can get people to understand the basic ecology of their gut, they can then ramp that up to the community, the state, the continent, the planet. So that's what I mean by the microbiome is potentially the greatest gift to the environmental movement. As soon as the two figure it out, I think we're going to see an acceleration, a hockey stick like acceleration, a Moore's law kind mm -hmm. of acceleration mm -hmm. and the people's understanding of the importance. And I think that's the problem. So again, going back to where humans came from, I have every reason to believe and we're going to over time this theory and this hypothesis will you know, get chewed up, spit out refortified but i think it's going in the right direction and yeah. i think as we backfill this with data it's just real simple humans lived on a microbial superhighway at the intersection with every plant and animal on the landscape we've now through culture you know we've now globalization we've changed of course we live to be 70 and 80 and all that kind of stuff but we also have diseases earlier in life now the number of healthy years is possibly reduced and maybe we can be improved if we managed so by managed i mean this so 
everybody listening to this podcast is obviously intelligent. Obviously. Obviously intelligent. With excellent taste. Excellent taste. Everybody, you can't open a newspaper, pick up a magazine, turn on the television without seeing an article about gut bugs. The microbiome's connected to this. Now, a lot of it's being oversold, okay, but basically it's everywhere. The microbiome's the new black. It's everywhere. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. So, everybody sees this. I got to catch my breath there. You want some water? Oh, yeah, you got coffee? I don't think I've stopped talking. <laughs> <laughs> You're the easiest interview ever, man. <laughs> just press the go, press on, and, and I just sit back and I can turn off my mic. <laughs> actually, I actually lost my train of thought. What the hell were you talking well, about? Well, I mean, you were talking about the, the, well, you just finished the point of how the, the interior microbiome connects. It's the new black. Right. It's everywhere. I mean, I've got a, why don't I start talking when you remember what you were yeah, saying? Yeah, I'll, I'll come back. Because I, I, I wanted to cover a couple of, a couple of things. One is we've talked a lot about the microbiome in the gut, a little bit about the microbiome in the skin. Right. And we talked about how kids, uh, one in five, hundreds uh, of kids don't make it to five years of age. But you said a lot of them die from malaria, which has nothing to do with this. Yeah. Simple um, infections. Simple infection. Now, that's the thing. Is there any research on how quickly we heal? Uh, is is the skin microbiome related to healing from a wound? Yeah, there's there's researchers, and it's, it's not an area that, I pay, to be honest, I pay a lot of attention to. I'm going to screw this up, but I'm going to say that there is research that suggests that applying topically uh, probiotic, so to speak, uh, uh -huh. two skin infections, which actually make them heal faster. Right. Okay. So not keeps, an area I work in. Right. Uh, but you know, it's an area I guarantee. So a healthy skin microbiome would be related with quicker healing from wounds potentially. Potentially. But yeah. again, that's not an area I know of. And, right. and but I guarantee if you, if somebody out there Googled this right now, you could probably find it. And right. so, right. but the, the point back is the microbiome is, is everywhere and yeah. it is connected to almost everything. What about psychiatry? Uh, do you know anything about the gut and mental disorders or it's, Again, an area that I personally don't work in, but the the gut brain connection is a, is a hot research topic yeah, now. There's and like I think tons of nerve yeah, endings think, in the gut. Yeah, it? I think it's connected to. I if if I had to go out on a limb here, and I'm probably going to fall off this limb, but as part of the American Gut Project, we also have buried in an, an autism project. Ah, uh, right. Yeah, Jack yeah. Gilbert at the University of Chicago at the Argonne National Laboratories, who is a collaborator and founder of the American Gut Project as well, uh, a junior founder who's a brilliant researcher. Um, He's heading up uh, a project looking at autism. I also have a funding group that's also funding autism. There's groups looking at it. To make a long story short, there is a connection. Uh, there is a connection between autism and the gut microbiome. Is it correlation? Is it causation? Mm. It's early days. Right. And so I would, again, go out on a limb. Uh, there's also research looking at Alzheimer's. There's also right. all kinds of bipolar disorders. Uh on and on so if if i had to crystal ball this uh it may not be this decade it may be five decades in the future uh we're probably going to find that there's some relationship between the microbiome and causation with a lot of these ailments how can there not be yeah. you know because it, it, it's it seems that the the direction of the research is everything is interrelated the more the more deeply you look into things the more deeply you see how interrelated right. things are so what yeah. i was th th now i remember what i was going to say what's that so when, when we look at it like you said you can't pick up a newspaper open a magazine turn yeah. on the news microbiomes a new black um what you hear a lot of discussion around is food 
Mm-hmm. All right. So what food should I eat to promote a healthier microbiome? Right. Okay. What should I not eat? What should I eat? And it dominates the microbiome in the, in the media. The other one is antibiotics. A brilliant researcher who's also a collaborator with us in Africa is Marty Blazer. I would, I would strongly recommend anybody out there listening to this, go out and spend your 10 bucks, get a used copy of Marty's book. It's called Missing Microbes. It came out a few years ago. Marty is a silverback gorilla in microbiome research. He's at NYU. Uh, he's been to Africa with us. He's been on our project. Absolutely wonderful, sweet man. Wicked smart. Uh, married also, to Maria. He's married right? to Maria Glorias Dominguez Bello, who's a brilliant researcher. Yeah. She works with the Yanomamo. She Power works in, couple right there. Uh, these are these are amazingly uh, uh, sweet people and some of the smartest people in this in this in this area. Hmm. Marty's book, Missing Microbes. I would highly recommend that. Since I'm plugging friends' books, I would yeah. I would highly recommend the Good Gut, which is written by the uh, uh, Justin and Erica Sonnenberg at Stanford, who are also collaborators, the main collaborators on our project. I would also highly recommend a book by Jack Gilbert and Rob Knight called uh, Dirt is Good. Okay. Again, save, you know, save a little bit of money, buy these books, read them. They're easy reads, they're good reads, and also get Rewild, which is my little book. I need the 50 cents. <laughs> smear uh, some shit on it for you for shit an extra 50 cents. So I would highly recommend go out and do this. But the one thing that I was, <clears throat> excuse me, I was getting to that I think is important is, again, we all talk about, uh, we all talk about, uh, diet. We talk about diet a lot, but the thing that we're not talking about again is the environment. So what happens is this. So when, when let's just say you eat what somebody thinks is a perfect diet, whatever, a Mediterranean diet, and then some some jackass goes on a different diet, and somebody's on a paleo diet, and so on and so forth. Somebody goes on a low carb diet, whatever it is. Each one of these diets if you shift from one day to the next can have an impact on your microbiome. I do lots of self experimentation. I can, I can go full bacon, tequila, marijuana for seven days straight. Apparently you're on that phase here during yeah, a little visit. bit while yeah. you're here. Chris. Yeah. <laughs> Man, we lucked out. We came just the right time. Yeah. I'm rewilding out here. I'm All rewilding right. my body. Uh, so I can go on a certain diet for seven days, super high fat diet, whatever, yeah. you know, uh, it, it would horrify any nutritionist on the planet, you know, yeah. even, even the Weston Price Foundation would be horrified by the amount of fat that I'm doing in a certain experiment. Sample myself, look at the changes in my blood, and then I just go in and I can shift to a different diet and change my microbiome in 48 to 72 hours. Uh, but one of the ingredients, uh, macronutrients, that has the greatest impact, potentially the greatest impact on the microbiome that's well studied and well known is dietary fiber. Hmm. Now, dietary fiber is that stuff that gets stuck between your teeth when you're chewing on the asparagus. You know, it also comes in lots of other chemical and physical forms. But dietary fiber basically is this. Humans do not possess the enzymes to break down dietary fiber. That's what gives structure to plants and things like that. But you harbor the microbes that can Okay, and that's their job. Just like in a cow or ruminant, now right. a cow eats whatever hay, alfalfa, whatever, and the microbes then go to work. They break it down. They turn it into nutrients. Things like short chain fatty acids, acetate, propionate, butyrate. For you guys out there with a clipboard, and so, and so these things are then utilized by the animal. So we've worked out this relationship with these bugs. We provide them a moist, warm environment to live, but we need to feed them, and they eat among many things dietary fiber so the sonnenberg lab is another place that does lots of work on this the book good gut that justin and erica wrote talks about this a lot but the problem with dietary fiber it's no fun all right the average westerner you let's just say us eats less than 20 grams a day of dietary fiber okay 
the average Hadza, uh, we, it's very difficult to measure this, and I don't know if uh, uh, colleagues in the anthropological section are actually figuring out how to quantify this yet, but my kind of back-of-the-napkin observations and calculations hanging out with the Hadza, Hadza will consume anywhere from zero grams of fiber in a day to maybe as much as 200. But what's extraordinary about that is that the children, and when you see a Hadza baby, they have these big bloated bellies, and early explorers that came through the area interpret that as a malnutrition, okay? It's not, it's fermentation. The first weaning food in Hadza land, now it's unfortunately shifting to a maize porridge, or corn porridge, it's you know ground up corn mixed with water, is uh, baobab fruit. Baobab is that tree of life, life, you know, uh, yeah. Lion King tree. The, it produces a fruit that has this chalky innard that has a fatty seed on the inside. You, you, you pound it and grind it up, add water, maybe a little honey, and you drink it. And it's the primary weaning food for children in Hadzaland. Given the distribution of baobab trees in Africa, it's not much of a stretch to suggest this was the primary weaning food throughout human evolution. Right. Okay. Now, what's special about that food is it's life. super high in fiber. So, interestingly enough, the United States, the United States government, you, uh, yeah, the Department of Agriculture and the MyPlate, the food pyramid guys, all right, which is now MyPlate, they tell you that guys like you and I, need to consume about whatever 35 grams of fiber a day okay there are no dietary recommendations for fiber intake for kids less than two hmm. what i have found is that children will often consume more fiber than hu than the adults because once you you know it's the porridge okay and then they start chewing on tubers but as the boys grow old and they can hunt and the you know the diet changes right. sexual division of labor a lot right. of things going on so the recommendation in the u.s is adults eat more fiber than kids just the opposite right. in an evolutionary setting right Maybe the, just and, and actually the fiber is, you seem to be suggesting that that very high intake of fiber is helping to cultivate the microbiome that we need yeah. and here's and here's and here's an interesting thing that's important now when you eat lots of fiber okay we all uh, if you're not farting five to ten times a day with a whopper in there you need to get on it all right they call you need to get on the breeze yeah if you're not going to the bathroom two or three times a healthy defecation two or three times a day with a whopper in there okay hods will defecate two to three times a day sometimes as much as five what do you mean with a whopper in there like uh, well, like, like one good patty, shit a big okay, cow patty right. okay <laughs> you should also strive for cow patties uh, not not snakes oh snakes it's too much protein oh uh, really well, yeah what you want is a patty, you uh, want a patty. And it doesn't hurt to have a floater have you seen the, the turd chart no. There, there's a turd chart. So I forget what it's called, but a friend of mine pointed it out to me. It's online, and it sort of shows the different types of turds. And yeah, yeah, you know. And the healthy one is the snake. Is like a, a submarine. That's <sighs> nah, too much protein. That's what they say. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I, it's just me though. I mean, uh, you know, people can make their own decisions. But 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 what happens when you eat <laughs> dietary fiber? Here's uh, what happens. Uh, you yeah. eat let's say you eat a bunch of dietary fiber. It, right. it takes you know whatever four to eight hours to end up in the colon. That's where all the action is. And mm -hmm. colon's the last five feet, all right? So it ends up there, and then the microbes go to town on it, all right? Uh, as they break down this dietary fiber, okay, they produce short-chain fatty acids, like I said earlier, acetate, propionate, and butyrate. What they do is make the colonic environment more acidic, mm -hmm. okay? Now, I'm not talking about blood acidity, okay, with cancer and stuff. I'm talking about distal colon acidity. Right. So it's not much of a stretch to say that we now have the most alkaline guts in human history. So here's what happens is, is those short chain fatty acids, specifically butyrate, is food for the colonic environment, okay, the epithelial area. So what happens is, as acidity, it becomes more alkaline, 
okay, uh, and you stop feeding your you stop feeding your microbes, there's certain bacteria that say again, I'm oversimplifying here. Uh, a group of bacteria, uh, one of them is Acromantia. It's a, you'll see that in the media. It starts to eat the lining, the mucin layer, okay, to the inside of your colon, just like your vaginal canal and your nostrils has mucus. And it's a mucin layer, and it's laid down through goblet cells, which have communication with the microbes. So they lay down this layer. It kind of looks like suntan lotion you didn't rub in far mm-hmm. enough. Uh, the Acromantia starts eating that, if you will. Okay, It's a protective layer. Yeah, it's a protective layer. And then once it's basically compromised then you have exposure to things that are in your inside your colon and then you also make it easier for things to translocate from the colonic environment into your blood system which is leaky gut which is leaky gut which causes there's a term called endotoxemia i think that um, i'm gonna get this wrong but patrice canny in europe came up with this term endotoxemia is low grade inflammation now if, if we're civil war folks and we're shooting the muskets and you get the civil war you know sepsis killed more soldiers than than you know whatever bullets but the bullet caused the sepsis in the first place of the cut so you get low-grade sepsis which you get low-grade inflammation right inflammation is the basis of basically every metabolic disorder right it's the basis of weight gain it's the basis of everything so anyway uh not everything but a lot of things so the simple act of including more dietary fiber in your diet means you have more food for your bacteria. So you feed them, they make the colonic environment more acidic, which also makes it more inhospitable for pathogens, which also improves barrier function. So you shut down or slow down leaky gut. You know, it's like the swimming pool, those above ground swimming pools that you poke a needle the in. The liner, and yeah. It starts coming out. So right. that's what happens is, and the way you can play this game is besides eat more dietary fibers, go down to your local pharmacy, buy for $10 a little thing of those pH strips that you pee on or put in your pool. Now, they're not super accurate, but if you start dipping them in your poo and start going, oh, I have, you know, it's eight. You know, I, how do I get it to a six, which is more acidic? Eat more plants and it drops you want to keep dropping it and you want it, it as acidic as possible it's as acidic or? as possible which means you're right. fermenting right which means you're eating fiber right now when you also eat dietary fiber it also improves the diversity of bacteria in your gut as well right so there's so everybody so my point my bigger point is this we talk a lot about diet in in the media and microbiome research and and we talk a lot about antibiotics because antibiotics have a dramatic effect. And Marty Blazer, again, is a pioneer in this area, but there's lots of people that work in this area, is has a dramatic effect on your microbiome. Uh, negative impact. Does the job. You know, we can't, we wouldn't be where we are today without antibiotics and vaccines, okay? For better or worse. Yeah, for better or worse. Uh, but there is, a, there is an unintended consequence. But we're talking about diet and antibiotics. The reason we're talking about it so much is because we can measure it. Right. You can take a bunch of yahoos, take them and sequester them in a hospital, give these 10 people this food, this 10 people that food, change their diet, measure the impact, and you can say, okay, bacon's bad for the microbiome. Okay, whatever. So you can quantify what they eat and how it changes their microbiome. You can quantify that you took, you know, 10 courses of 1,000 milligrams of amoxicillin. What you can't quantify, or what you, what we started to quantify, is the contribution of the regional species pool. Yeah. I would argue, and is that diet is just a filter. So, for example, let's say you took you, Chris, and you had, whatever, 1,000 species of microbes in your body, and you ate nothing but Haagen-Dazs ice cream for a week, which would be wonderful. Uh, you, let's say you drop the diversity to 900, okay? Uh, and then you and you take away the Haagen-Dazs ice cream. Uh, will you bounce back to 1,000 or not? I'm not quite sure. But we can measure the impact of diet on the diversity of your microbiome. And so diet is a filter, 
you're filtering the bugs through nutrients. Right. Another filter may be you stay in your house all the time. You never open your windows. What about stress and in, in, in psychological state? Does stress affect the microbiome? I don't know. Uh, it's not an area or, or I work exercise, in. Exercise, uh, again, exor- exercise. Again, it's hard to say. Like for example, in the American Gut Project, we ask people, "Do you exercise? Do you exercise inside? Do you exercise outside?" Hmm. And again, I'm going to screw this up. I don't have the paper in front of me, but I think there was a difference in people that exercise outside and frequency of exercising. The hmm. question is, is it the physical act of exercising, or just being outside? Or being outside. Right. Is it the kind of clothes you wore? You right. Know, I mean, there's too many what are called confounders. And what kind of exercise are you? Rock climbing or jogging or swimming? Exactly. Yeah. Are you, in, yeah. are you in a pond? Are you in a swimming pool? Right, chlorine? Are you right. in the ocean? So what happens is, is we can measure diet. So we talk about diet a lot. Yeah. So everybody's talking about how I eat a healthier diet for my microbiome, but that's just one filter. Uh, for example, if you spend all your time inside and not outside, that's a filter. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're filtering the microbes, right. both the ones in you and the ones that have access right, to you. Right. So when you start looking at you know, when you start looking at the world as a set of filters, you start to realize that the difference between Hadza and their ancestors and our ancestors um, is is the is the intensity and amount of filters. So, for example, this is small. I can't set. For example, in Hadza land, you know, they live in a grass hut. You live in a you live in a skyscraper. They drink water from an open pond that you and I get it from a faucet. It's been literally filtered yeah and it's got chlorine in it right. it's got fluoride potentially in it or whatever so you start you know their grocery store is the is the impala hanging in the tree or the berry they pick right off the bush right us we go in the grocery store it's cans it's food yeah. that's irradiated it's meat that's nicely wrapped uh and the usda makes sure there's no microbes on it we've literally scrubbed the microbes from our diet and so when you start adding up the filters our ancestors potentially had fewer filters, well, not potentially, they had a lot Definitely, fewer filters. Yeah. And you and I have, even childbirth is a filter. Right. Hot, let's say the 99.9% of the Hadza kids are born vaginally, they're inoculated with those heirloom bacteria that they're supposed to, whereas one out of three children in the United States is born C-section. Yeah. Some places in China and even South America, it's as much as 70, 80% are C-section. So the birthing method is a filter. Sure. Baby formula is a filter. It goes on and on and on. We put pesticides on our food that has an impact on the microbes on the planet. So everything's a filter. So if you want to talk about managing your microbe, your microbiome, you're going to have to move beyond diet. Right. Again, diet's important, very important. Antibiotics, super important. But it's only two things that we, there's lots of things we measure, but those are ones. You have to look at all the filters. So if I was in charge of public health policy, okay, which ain't happening anytime soon, is, uh, None I would start to hat. start to try to understand from a personal perspective, you know, both at a societal level and a personal perspective, what are all the filters in my life? Okay. Right. How do I manage them better to possibly improve the diversity of my microbiome? Now there also may be downsides. And also what's on the other side of that filter? Because as you were saying, the environment the HUDs are living in is far richer in these micro in these uh, uh, bio, bio what's what's the noun? The, the the bacteria the the, right. the 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 organisms than our than this like we're sitting here in Texas if we removed all the filters right there's not that much out there yeah, I mean there, it's again I, I overuse this but it's not much of a leap to say that again we're we're primates we evolved on an African savanna uh, for a big chunk of our history uh, and we had an intimate relationship with plants and animals on those landscapes so it's not it's not 
for example, you and I might not possess microbes from a zebra, whereas the Hadza might, and that might be important. So they developed this long-standing relationship, this symbiotic relationship with the microbes in those plants and animals that have selected for them. Right. So you and I no longer have access to those animals. So, so to, to your point, is the microbes from a horse just as good as the microbes from a zebra? Hmm. Uh, for us right. and nobody knows the answer right. are the birds here who have let's say a different diet or yeah. have access to chlorinate are they different than the microbes and the birds there so right. nobody knows but if you if you develop the hypothesis then we can start to look at it and ask yeah. these questions but again i would go out on a limb and say that pharmaceutical companies at the end of the day are going to try to figure out how to drug our microbiome into compliance everybody's looking for the magic bug or the magic pill which basically as you've heard this a thousand times which basically approves of our bad behavior and our bad behavior is unfortunately there's seven billion of us now and i love my life you guys love your life and we're not going back but the question is can we be better stewards of the regional species pool because we are intimately connected and dependent upon it or are we just going to wait on science and technology to save our ass at the end of the day so i think this is a teaching moment okay for the planet i think it's a teaching moment for every single parent out there as well with regards to again not all c-sections are necessary some of them are and i think this and i'm going to screw this up but i think necessary c-sections which help save lives i think is in the single digit range yeah but shouldn't be in the 30 to 40 percent range right so if we have public health policy that recognizes that first thousand days of life that if we can't have a vaginal birth maybe we do vaginal swabbing mm-hmm. put the swab which maria gloria dominguez bell develop and has been working with Puerto Rican uh, mothers with is you know if you can't have a, a vaginal baby maybe you have c-section you put a you put a swab in the vagina it's controversial you wipe the baby down with why it. why would it be the, controversial well, just some, stupid anti-sexual squeamishness i mean it's a vagina the baby comes out of a vagina people exactly let's deal with it exactly jesus but Christ. if we can have if we can this is my hope this is yeah. this is the optimist in me is that if if we can get people to wrap their heads around the fact that that their internal ecosystem is dependent on the external ecosystem. Yeah. So you can make that leap, but we don't know which parts, but let's just say that the basic idea holds some, some truth. All yeah. right. Then you get people to figure out how to protect those landscapes. Then you right. get people how to think about, you know, fil- how managing their filters, biotic and abiotic filters. Then you get people saying, you know, if, C-section versus vaginal is very important, then maybe we should really take a look at this from a public health policy perspective. And if breastfeeding is really that critical, then we need to provide safer places in the workplace for females to breastfeed. And the culture needs to change. Come on. I mean, your Facebook won't even let you show a titty. I I know. For God's sake. I posted a picture of a Himba woman from Namibia a couple weeks ago on Facebook. This is a group we work with in Namibia. And Facebook turned my account off oh, sent me an email on, and told me that you know you behave or else and so they turned it back on i was like this is fucked up yeah, <laughs> yeah they're, they're, up. the culture being run by children yeah i, I mean the the I, I remember reading something about a transsexual who had posted photos of himself before the operation topless and it was no problem but then after the operation suddenly he couldn't take she now couldn't right, right. put photos because she'd become wow. a woman it's like well, are you fucking kidding me wow all right great. all right before we move on and i know you got a lot of shit to do so i don't want to keep you know i don't want to keep you all day but um i wanted to ask you just before we move on to more big ideas 
practical stuff while we're talking like so obviously vaginal birth is preferable to c-section breast breastfeeding is very important if, if you can yeah, do it obviously yeah. And, yeah. and we're not guilt tripping right. mothers who, who've done c-section i mean you know we're a couple of dudes here with you know nothing. both my children were born c-section no, yeah. there you so, go. And both yeah. of them were necessary because of complications right so it so yeah i mean that kind of stuff happens but when possible it's important and the vaginal smear on the baby's face nose mouth is important to inoculate the the baby with the mother's microbiome what else you, you're talking about dietary fiber obviously that's available in a lot of foods but you and i were talking last night i showed you these fiber capsules i've yeah. been taking you said that's kind of a waste of money but you said what was the stuff yeah you one said of the things if, if again if you go with data if you go with research you know yeah. don't go with jim in a yurt in idaho nothing wrong with jim with a yurt in idaho uh but but what you want to do is look at good solid peer review you, you can't go wrong eating whole plants all right can't yeah. go wrong there and if you're going to eat there, there's a specific set you know fiber comes in lots of flavors just like people comes in different physical and chemical forms so for example if you chewed on a toothpick and swallowed the damn thing it's not really going to get broken down it's you know heavy duty cellulose hemocellulose and pexin anyway probably going to pass out the other end so but there's then that grades all the way down to there's there's a particular fiber out there called fructans uh or what you often hear called prebiotics now prebiotics are food for bacteria bacteria you know just catch all probiotics but prebiotic is food for probiotics so there's a specific prebiotic that comes in the form of fructans which is also known as inulin it occurs naturally in onions artichokes leeks now we've all cooked onions and we've we all like them caramelized all right so you take an onion okay which is uh, stores this stores the carbohydrate fructan which is a fiber and we cook the shit out of it okay hopefully in bacon grease uh cook shit or out of butter it. At yeah, least. we caramelize it it's sweet and the reason why is we're breaking it down into sugars all right now it's no longer fiber all right, so minimally cooked. I highly, highly, and I'm not paid by the Jerusalem Architect Association of America or the Leak <laughs> Association of America. Leaks, people, go out and buy leaks. Huh. Leaks are those funny things you don't buy. When you buy them, chop them into poker chips. Eat the whole damn thing. Don't chop the green stuff off the top and throw it away. Chop it into little pieces. Mix it in your scrambled eggs. Put it in your soup. Don't cook it too much. Mm. But eat the whole damn thing. These prebiotic foods will stimulate the growth of healthy bacteria or lactic acid bacteria. Now, you can also go on Amazon.com. Through, just, just through Chris Ryan's Amazon affiliate. Through link. Chris Ryan's, affi <laughs> Ryan's affiliate program. Google the word inulin. Google the word prebiotic. Inulin, I-N. I-N-U-L-I-N. Okay. okay. It comes in little bags. It's a little pricey, but you can, you can put a little bit in your coffee in the morning, stir it up. And play a little game with yourself. Uh, start off with about a half of a teaspoon, okay? And just for fun one day on a Saturday when you don't have anything to do, put like five teaspoons in there and then get ready, all right? <laughs> you'll take about, you'll, you'll grow an amazing amount of biomass. You got to remember really? when, when you eat fiber, you got to remember your stool sample, up to 50% or more of your stool sample when you move the water and the food particles is bacteria. Yeah. You shit bacteria. So you're going to create lots of biomass. You're going to fart. You maybe even have some discs comfort uh which cap depends on what your baseline is right uh -huh. so i always tell people start off really small over the first couple days or couple weeks and then slowly ratchet it up to about five grams five grams is half of a you know a teaspoon or whatever uh, -huh. uh and and you'll do wonders for yourself huh. you'll improve the acidity of your colonic environment you'll right. improve barrier function now this is not the only thing and it shouldn't be the only thing but it should be part of a healthier diet and i define healthy diet as basically anything you like to eat so long as it includes dietary fiber hmm. so for example if if you want to live off of 
pizza and do all that kind of stuff, consume as much dietary fiber as you want. Now, nobody's going to tell you to go out and eat pizza, and all of us are not going to eat pizza every day. We're not all going to eat McDonald's all day long, but we all try to eat healthy. The other thing you got to remember, when you go to a salad bar, you go in that salad bar and you pile all that iceberg lettuce up there there's no there's not a it's lot it's just of water there. yeah the easiest quickest way to get some a lot of fiber is is good old lentils you know huh. they're cheap you know a couple lentils is what 25 grams of right. fiber and uh but what i do with lentils is i cook a bunch of them or at least try to cook a bunch of them put them in a tupperware bowl put them in the refrigerator and just add them to everything yeah you know yeah. eat whole plant and again i everybody in the audience and everybody listens today we, we all have good intentions we go to the grocery store we we got all the green stuff on top and we put it in the fridge and it rots all right start throwing that stuff in the scrambled eggs you don't have to shy away from bacon dietary fiber dietary fiber dietary fiber mm. it's no fun it's not sexy nobody makes a dime off it mm. literally nobody buys it. you it's can't cheap. get you can't yeah. get the shit away all right yeah. so try to get more dietary fiber in your diet 90% of Americans spend, I, again, I'm going to screw this up, the vast majority of their time inside a car, an office, or a bill, open the damn windows. Change the microbiome in your house. Mm. Invite the bugs in. Now, all of this comes with the caveat of bugs also kill you. So is farting good? Is farting a sign that there's fermentation going on Correct. and healthy? Now, in if it stinks really bad, the methane and stuff, you know, it's like we've all gone, uh, we've all had really small, you know, crappy or, or smelly farts and shits and stuff a lot of that associated with meat consumption right okay uh, so if you're not as i said before you should be farting you know you know dozen times a day i've been gassy my whole life right now some of it's also associated with other problems too uh you know so people that people that have uh uh what do they call it uh Lactose intolerance. Lactose intolerance. Yeah. People that have uh, small intestine overgrowth, and so yeah, yeah. you know, I, I invariably get emails every day from people saying, "You know, well, I've got this issue. I can't eat fiber." So I'm just talking about the average person, right. and so on right. and so forth. But what what I can't stress enough. If you got the 99 bucks or the 100 bucks, try to get your microbiome tested. I cannot stress that. Well, I'm going to do it for sure. Yeah. Well, we should do yours yeah. and then get your results and talk about it. There you go. And yeah. so, and what we should uh, maybe play around with a little dietary intervention. Yeah, I'd love and to. And then go get some damn I'd, pH I'd love strips. to be a guinea pig. Hell yeah. So, I tell people like we just talked about get some prebiotics eat more onions garlic leek try to eat more plants you don't have to stop eating everything so else. acidophilus i used to take acidophilus every day when i was traveling yeah, i thought bacillus acidophilus yeah yeah here's another thing you got to remember about probiotics i'm going to piss off some people here is probiotics that you buy over the counter are probiotics that behave very well in a commercial environment right. you can grow them right you can mass produce them now if you went to here's the analogy i give people about probiotics if you went to a square kilometer of a tropical rainforest and you and you look up and there's just how many hundreds of species of trees birds i mean extraordinary diversity high resistance good resilience all right yeah. and you planted a daisy at the bottom of that tree okay you, by the way you can put a billion bacteria on the tip of a pen if you look at a period at the end of a sentence that's what a billion bacteria more or less looks like if you stack them up all right, all right. so if you read these probiotics contains five billion cultures i'm Seems like oh, like I'm like, oh five pi five periods all right <laughs> so uh the idea is they'll get right. in there and grow and stuff and yeah. yes they do maybe they don't maybe there's no shelf stability but anyway yeah. you planted a daisy at the bottom of a 300 foot tall tree with 
200 species of God knows what in that one tree and you expect that daisy to have an impact on that ecosystem. <laughs> now it'll have a micro impact. You know, the shade will be different here on that side. But at the end of the day, yeah. you, you just save your money and, yeah. you know, and, and the other thing I should tell people. Hey, you said last night, save your money and lick your hand. Yeah, like, that'll be better for your micro. Yeah, you probably don't want to do that either. But it's more of a joke. You're better off licking your fingers than a, the point is, is that save your money. Yeah. The other thing I would suggest to people, again, uh, Again, I'm I'm just some idiot. and nobody's pretending we're doctors here. No, we're so, just, we're so just, this is just a couple of dudes talking. Yeah, you're not allowed to provide medical advice. Right, right. Anyway, what based on what you know, what I'm seeing and what I think we're going, we're not 100. I don't think I'm 100 percent right, but I think that humans were at the intersection of this microbial superhighway, and that we evolved a dependency, a dependency on nature for ecosystem services that go well beyond timber, water, cotton, that those ecosystem services that were provided by that regional species pool come in a lot of flavors, but also a microbial one. We've now, it's, it's no different than taking and, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to trying to do this study. You know, you go to the zoo, you see the zebra in there, the fat chimpanzees or whatever, and are people like, oh, you changed their diet and stuff. Yeah, you changed their access to microbes too. Yeah. So, so now you have a chimpanzee in the Good San Francisco point. Zoo. That chimpanzee, now we have a collaboration with some chimpanzee researchers in Africa. We've been working on a project for two years now. And so we're, we're folding that into our evolutionary discussion now. So you got the, the zebra, the chimp, the bonobo, whatever. Uh, uh, not too many bonobos. They play around too much for the general public i think san diego zoo yeah hey, i gotta go see that and uh and near holland near amsterdam there's oh, a been big, to that one. It's yeah the, um, arnhem the primate center there oh I'm yeah. the prim- i went to the big zoo there it's in amsterdam it's uh, uh no this one's outside amsterdam oh, okay there's a nice zoo in it yeah but this one's this is where our friends deval did right. his work yeah we'll talk so when you look at it yeah. when i look at a fat chimpanzee or if i look at it i mean there's lots of data if you read the journals that the the guys who uh do zoo work that publish in zoological journals or whatever they publish in you know they got you know now you got chimpanzees with heart disease you got the rhino oh, probably not a rhino an elephant that's got heart disease diabetes or whatever and it's always well oh we're feeding them the wrong food and stuff and i think that's part of it but you've removed them from the regional species pool now they may yeah. be housed next to some friends from the savannah but the water sources aren't connected right you know and stuff like that so i thought it'd be a yeah, fascinating study that's interesting to, yeah. to look at let's say let's say they're capturing whatever zebra right now uh, in the serengeti and they're transporting them to a zoo in australia sample the zebras before they leave right sample the zebras when they get there and then follow the zebra microbiome for a year and compare it to the wild cohorts and stuff so again i I always tell people it's I think it's the 800 pound wicker gorilla in the room we're not talking about, which is fiber because it's no fun. And it's Metamucil and put mom, dad used to put in their drink, whole plants, whole plants, whole plants, get as much you can, eat them, figure out a strategy to get them in your life. But the the world's packaged now. It comes in the form of a package and it's a donut. And appreciate that we are intimately connected with nature. We Don't, are nature. Right. That's the thing. We always talk about nature as if it's this thing exterior to us. But your your research it's is a new twist. It's out. We, it's nature's within us. So look at that and yeah. say, okay, we're yeah. not going back. We're not going to reconnect to that regional species pool. Pharmaceutical companies may do it for us, but that that that's going to cost twenty nine ninety five a month. Yeah, and so. But I think, again, if you go out and, again, buy some of these books I suggested, you know, uh, buy them used to save some money, whatever you got to do. But also maybe 
maybe dip your toe in ecology as well. You know, get you an E.O. Wilson book. There you you go. know, start reading about you know uh, ecosystems, and sometimes it's hard to choke through. Uh, there's a you know there's a and it's unfortunate too. You know, you watch things like National Geographic and Discovery Channel. It used to be about wildlife. Now it's about a tattoo parlor. There's nothing wrong with tattoos. Okay, there's nothing wrong with muscle cars. Nothing wrong with bail bondsmen chasing people around on National Geographic. But we 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 not only have we physically moved away from nature and the regional species pool we're intellectually moving mm. away from it which is possibly more terrifying and and you know i i, I mean i love these new bbc uh, the planet earth series i don't know if you've seen them it's fantastic and the blue planet just amazing photography but you know my gripe with those is that um they depict nature they always depict nature as this hostile environment mm -hmm. nature you know constant struggle for survival Red yeah. Tooth and claw. Yeah, yeah exactly this hobbesian view of nature which it makes for good television because you get the shark attacking the seal you get right. the the orcas coming up on the beach and grabbing the babies and it's like oh my god but that's not an accurate depiction of what nature is like i mean even in africa which you know on the savannah would you see all these cheetahs running down the antelope and all that I mean, I was in Africa. There are a lot of lions lying around. You know, they're not out killing shit every day. They lie around nine days for every day they're out killing something, you know. Um, but I, I, before, I mean, I, I, we've gone way over the time we allotted for this. But uh, did we cover the bending tree limb? Oh, that was the other thing. It was back to. Yeah. And by the way, this is leaking. This thing out here is oh, that supposed to be? Do you mind turning that off? It's uh, yeah. That that big water, water tank is leaking. Yeah, if you can leak the water hose, welcome to the desert. Yeah. Turn up. Uh, yeah. The the thing that I want to put again is 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 to, to understand your health. To really understand your health, uh, you know, you don't need to go out and buy fifty new diet books. To understand your health is to the basic concepts of ecology, which is resistance and resilience. And the easiest way to explain that and why Westerners, the reason us in the West have a less diverse microbiome is because all these filters I talked about. It's not just diet; it's where we live, how we live. It's lack of access to new immigration from microbes from the regional species pool. But the easiest way to think about that, when you take a broad spectrum antibiotic, okay, think about uh, think about a valley. Okay, and there's a ball in the valley. Okay, and that's your microbiome. That's your microbiome sitting in the ball. So when you take an, an antibiotic and you shift your your microbiome in a different direction, you drop the diversity. Now these uh, species came up. These species went down. Dramatic things can happen with diet and, and antibiotics. You basically move in that ball to a new valley. Okay, you've changed its equilibrium. Right. And once it gets in that new valley, it's hard to move it back. Right. Okay. So it's this it's this it's these bowls of attraction, and it's because it wants to stay there okay so what happened the analogy also is if you you know you and i are big guys uh you jump up on a tree limb that's let's say that's the size of your arm okay you jump on you grab the tree limb and you pull it down and you let go okay it bounces back up basically where it was and you keep doing it that's basically our lifestyle everything that we do is a perturbation or challenge to the resistance and the stability of that equilibrium of our microbiome and over time the branch just starts to sag hmm. okay so now we see in mouse models where you can feed mice a certain percentage of their diet in the form of dietary fiber you can reduce it you can ratchet down their diversity and those mice pass that lower diversity on to the next generation yeah and that's probably what we're that's an that's probably what we're seeing with c-sections mothers with diver yeah. less diverse breast microbiomes or breast milk microbiomes. so everything about us is an assault is it now imagine that tree limb is as big around is your chest okay 
that's the Hadza microbiome. Right. Very resistant to change, meaning you can't bend it down. But if you do bend it, it's highly resilient because of its access to the regional species. Is there form. any in- intersection between the microbiome research that you're doing and epigenetics? I don't follow epigenetics. Uh, there probably is, because but I don't I, know. I mean, I know that the, the part of the interaction uh, between the, the body and, and the microbiome is on the level of genetics, things that are being triggered. So I guess it would be epigenetics. So yeah. I, mean, I don't know. It's not huh, an area that interesting. I, I mean, I can barely get my ass out in the field in Africa with liquid nitrogen, much less all these, <laughs> these other important things. And so what we're going to be doing going yeah. forward is as we're headed back to Africa, we spend quite a few. You're going in October. Uh, going next month. Oh, you're going next month. Yeah. Right. So we're going to go. We have a project in Namibia, too, where we're looking. Mm-hmm at uh, San Bushman and Himba headed back to Africa to do some experiments. We're highly focused now. We've done some, we've sam- of the 1,200 Hadza, more or less, plus or minus, that are still out there, we've sampled about 400 of them. That's but amazing. we've sampled some of them a uh, hundred times. Yeah. So we're following them longitudinally. So now what we're focused on is, uh, and it's a big area, it's very hard to work in, we're focused on children. We want to catch these kids the day they're born, okay? Yeah. We want to sample them their oral skin, yeah. breast milk of mom, their siblings. And we want to follow these children, okay, over the first two years of life. So we can see this this thing is called secession, how you acquire microbes. Which came vertically, which came from the environment? Where did they come from yeah. in the environment? Who's contributing these microbes? Is it the soil? Is it the plants? Is it the is it the neighbors? And and on and on and on. So yeah. really trying to put together a detailed picture of how humans, you know, may have accumulated and maintained what we think is a more diverse microbiome than us and that that microbiome diversity is possibly important. Again, and I'll, I'll end this again by saying we're not suggesting that people should eat a hunter-gatherer diet. We're not suggesting people should emulate the Hadza diet or lifestyle. All we're saying is that this group of people who still are intimately connected to nature, who are highly impacted along an acculturation gradient, some Hadza very much uh, impacted, some not so much, and we can study that acculturation gradient in Hadza land or uh, transacculturation gradient, is that it is interesting. We don't know why it's interesting. We have some ideas, and we're going to continue to work on this, but it's very important. We're not saying that you should eat like a Hadza or even that you need all the same microbes as you pointed out that the Hadza have we're just trying to characterize them figure out how they got there and figure out the distance between them and us and what's important between here and there right thank you man this has been wonderful you know my my plan coming into this was to spend about half of it on the research and then get into who you are yeah and the other half and you seem like a private person but i was going to try to break down some walls there and get more of your story but i mean we've spent the whole time talking about the research I hope you'll uh, come back on and we can talk about you. you. Thank All right, you. Thanks, thank, Chris. We really appreciate you, it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through Patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. Thank you to Basin and Range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast. Very funky little 
tune there uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun, I believe. You can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, Thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those T-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design T-shirts in Thailand. And you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at CarseyBlanton.com. C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm. And it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can, because, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel Say what you want to say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation say when everyone we've ever known is headed for a headstone i don't want to give the end away we're gonna die one day we're gonna die one day we're gonna die one day so baby what's a big deal if you want to be what you want to feel Spend the night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground